Welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 335 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, impacts of Soyuz 11 on future Soyuz, Salyut 1, and Apollo. For the state commission charged with investigating the Soyuz 11 tragedy, two elements stood out. Number one, spacesuits. And number two, ventilation valves. I will cover the spacesuits first. The decision to send cosmonauts into space without pressure suits was made years before the accident. It was a politically motivated decision made in order to create a spectacular spaceflight for first secretary of the Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchev. In early 1964, OKB-1 chief designer Korolev ordered his design engineer, Vyaktistok, to adapt the Vostok spacecraft to accommodate three men. And, in order to create the impression that this was an entirely new vehicle, it was to be named Voskhod. As there was insufficient room for three men dressed in the pressure suits like the ones worn by the Vostok cosmonauts, it was decided that the crew would wear casual clothing. During a meeting on this issue, Korolev said that working in the spacecraft in a pressure suit was as uncomfortable as working inside a submarine wearing a wetsuit. In addition, in order to fit three couches into the capsule, it was necessary to remove the ejection seats that were in all the Vostok missions. So the Voskhod crews were the first to be launched with no means of escape if their rocket were to have a malfunction during the first 27 seconds of its flight. The Octistok was initially uncomfortable with this design change, but he led the modifications when Korolev promised that one of the designers could be a member of the first Voskhod crew. Because the descent module of the three-seat Soyuz was not much larger than the old spherical capsule, it was likewise designed for use without pressure suits. In March 1964, Korolev advised Khrushchev of the possibility of sending a three-man crew into space. The American Apollo that was to be capable of carrying three astronauts was not expected to start flying until late 1966. So Khrushchev eagerly accepted Korolev's proposal. He was unconcerned that the cosmonauts would fly without pressure suits. His motivations were entirely political. For him, the most important thing was once again to beat the Americans. During the chief designer's lifetime, only astronaut trainer General Kamanin had sharply objected to flying without pressure suits. In fact, he attempted to force a return to the use of pressure suits. Now I want to read an entry from Kamanin's diary written shortly after the Soyuz 11 accident. It says, quote, Cosmonauts and the Air Force specialist insisted many times, both verbally and in writing, to the Central Committee of the Communist Party on the need to wear pressure suits and the need for equipment to pump air in the descent module. 
but they were always refused. This went on for a period of seven years. Responding to our request, Mission several times said that we were overcautious, that the decompression of the Soyuz spacecraft was completely removed from consideration. The crews of our spaceships have flown without pressure suits for seven years. Cosmonauts have written to Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Ustinov, and Smirnov about the danger of such flights. But all our requests were refused, first by Korolev and in recent years by Mission, who said that hundreds of unmanned satellites and piloted spacecraft have flown in space without a single case of decompression. End quote. In the early phase of the Soyuz program, Chief Designer Vasily Mission's responsibilities were related to rocketry. He had very little involvement in the design of manned space vehicles when he succeeded Korolev as the chief designer in 1966. By then, the development of the Soyuz was nearing completion. However, it would have still been possible to modify the design to accommodate a crew wearing pressure suits, but only by eliminating one of the cosmonauts' seats. The second major error was the decision not to install the tanks which would have supplied additional air to the crew in the event of a decompression. This was accepted by mission despite the protest of General Kamanin and the specialist at the cosmonaut training facility. Interestingly, no one at OKB-1 had the courage to seriously analyze the risk of flying without pressure suits and then challenge Korolev and Fyoktistov. After the accident, Mission continued to defend Korolev's pressure suit decision by saying that during over 1,000 tests of the descent module, there had been no problems relating to decompression. Noting that for decades, hermetically sealed aircraft had flown at altitudes of 10 kilometers or greater, carrying crew and passenger wearing casual clothes rather than pressure suits. Mission also said, quote, I think Korolev's decision was correct. It was necessary to focus attention not on individual protection, but on the protection of the entire module, on group protection. Our idea was to develop such a robust hermetic unit that we would not need a backup for each element, end quote. Returning to the Soyuz 11 investigation, while the descent module was at the landing site, it was established to be pressure tight. On its arrival in Moscow, it was examined by experts from OKB-1. The hypothesis that a valve had been inadvertently opened when the orbital module was jettisoned was eventually proven possible by testing of the capsule in the vacuum chamber. With this evidence, the premature opening of the valve during the separation of the modules of Soyuz 11 was officially accepted as the cause of the decompression. Now let's take a moment to consider the function of the ventilation valve, which was the technical cause of the loss of the Soyuz 11 crew. The limited capacity of the launch vehicle, by that I mean the carrier rocket, required Fiocktistok and his design team to make the Soyuz descent module a very small vehicle. It was so cramped 
that it was at the limit for accommodating three cosmonauts. In fact, the bell-shaped module stood 2.16 meters tall, had a maximum diameter at its base of 2.2 meters, and weighed only 2.8 tons. Yet, it had to contain couches for three cosmonauts and all the necessary life support equipment together with the systems to operate the spacecraft in space and two large parachutes for landing. The free volume of the cabin was a mere two and a half cubic meters, which was less room per cosmonaut than the Vostok capsule. The air in such a cramped module could support the lives of three cosmonauts for only a short time, but this was acceptable because it operated autonomously only for 30 minutes from the separation of the orbital and propulsion modules through re-entry and landing. Nevertheless, once the parachute deployed at an altitude of approximately 5 kilometers, two ventilation valves were supposed to automatically open to allow fresh air to enter the cabin, both to equalize the internal and external pressures and to eliminate the risk of the cosmonauts asphyxiating in the event of their having to remain inside for some time after landing, as might occur if the hatch were unable to be opened as a result of a technical problem or if the module were to land in water and the hatch was partially submerged. As a safety precaution, each of the two ventilation valves had two shutters, a manual shutter and an automatic shutter. In order to vent the cabin, both shutters had to be open. The crew had no control over the automatic shutter, which would be opened by a pair of pyrotechnic charges after the deployment of the main parachute. But next to the automatic shutter was one that the cosmonauts could open manually by a small rotating knob. So long as at least one shutter remained closed, the valve would be closed. It functioned like an automatic valve with a manual override. The valves were placed below the ring of the hatch, the number one valve above Dabrowski's couch and the number two valve above Patsayev's couch. The valves were on opposite sides of the hatch, so that if the modules were to land on water, there would be no chance for both of the valves to be submerged. In the event of a splashdown, the manual shutters would be operated by the crew as required to prevent water ingress. This was the only circumstance in which the crew were to operate the manual shutters. This begs the question, why did the automatic valve open at an altitude of approximately 150 kilometers rather than at 5 kilometers when it was supposed to happen? Here's the reason. The orbital and descent modules were connected by a dozen bolts in the ring that housed the hatch. During the assembly of the spacecraft, the bolts had been fastened using a special tool. Then the joint was checked in an altitude chamber to ensure a hermetic seal. The combined force of all the bolts was about 100 tons. To separate the modules in space, the bolts had to be severed simultaneously. Hence, 
each bolt incorporated a small explosive charge and an electric circuit. According to the plan, a timer would cause electricity to be supplied to the bolts in order to detonate the explosive charges and sever the bolts, applying a force of 100 tons for a duration of one microsecond. The explosions created a shock wave across the metallic surface of the craft. The valves were located close alongside the connecting ring and so would have been particularly sensitive to the propagation of this shock. In the case of Soyuz 11, this caused an automatic valve to pop open. The fact that particles of gunpowder were found inside one valve was conclusive proof that it had opened at the moment of separation. During the investigation and in the years that followed the accident, many factors were discovered that contributed to the tragedy. These were the corrections that needed to be made for future Soyuz missions. First, the ventilation valves. Number one, the screws on the ventilation valves of the descent module had been insufficiently torqued the automatic shutter used a ball which was held in its nest by a screw, but the screw on the number one valve was not fastened properly, and when the pyrotechnics fired to jettison the orbital module, the ball was unseated from its nest, thus allowing the valve to open and vent the cabin atmosphere into space. Number two, during the preparation of the spacecraft at the Cosmodrome, the technicians changed the positions of the manually operated shutters on both valves, making them inconsistent with the onboard documentation. Number three, the construction of the valves required direct manual operation, which in turn meant that the cosmonaut had to unbuckle from his seat and stand up. The valves should have been able to be closed via the control panel. Number four, the closing of the manually operated shutter was too time-consuming. In ideal conditions, it took at least 35 seconds. And number five, valve number one's position above the center couch was very close to the explosive bolts, making it susceptible to damage from the shock wave that was propagated through the structure by jettisoning of the orbital module. Next, the Soyuz life support system. Number one, having decided that decompression was impossible, the designers of the spacecraft did not provide an efficient means of protecting against it. OKB-1 neglected to conduct a full risk assessment of all the factors which could lead to the loss of the crew as a result of not wearing pressure suits. Number two, as on all previous Soviet spacecraft, Soyuz was designed to have the maximum of automation. This minimized the role of the crew in operating the most important of the vehicle's systems, life support. Number three, there were no pressure suits to protect the cosmonauts in the event of decompression. Number four, the crew was not even given simple oxygen masks of the type that deploy automatically if the pressure drops in a commercial airliner. If oxygen masks were deployed automatically, the cosmonauts may have been able to function for several minutes after a rapid decompression 
instead of only seconds, which would have been more than sufficient time to close the leaking valve. Number five, due to its severely limited volume, the descent module did not have its own air tanks and could not have replenished the cabin in the event of decompression. And number six, it was not the practice of the specialist at OKB-1 to inspect the state of the valves on a descent module after its mission was over. If they had done so, they would have noted the varying degrees to which the screws of the valves were being torqued during assembly. Next, mission control. Number one, the organization of the Soyuz 11 mission was one of the weakest links in the chain of factors leading to this tragedy. The spacecraft was modified and tested much too hastily. The mission plan and the organization of the crew's activities were also deployed in a hurry and without full consideration of the implications of a prolonged exposure to weightlessness. For mission, who was antagonistic to the Salyut program, the main event in June of 1971 was the third launch of the N-1 lunar rocket. In order to oversee the launch, immediately after the docking of Soyuz 11 with the Salyut station, Mission reassigned the flight directors. Yelizhev's assignment as the new flight director for the Soyuz 11 mission, while the mission was already underway, was very strange. In addition, the difficulty in coordinating the tracking ships in the final phase of the flight was further evidence that there were gaps in the organization. Number two, the technical documentation had crucial errors. After the return of Soyuz 10, the revision to the docking system were made within a month. Due to the tight schedule, Soyuz 11 was launched with onboard documentation and instructions which were inconsistent with the true situation, in particular, the manual shutters of the ventilation valves. Consequently, when the cosmonauts realized that a valve was leaking and went by the onboard documentation, they wasted valuable time trying to close a valve that was already closed, while one that was thought to be closed was actually leaking. Number three. The controllers at Mission Control knew the valves in the descent module were not as specified by the onboard documentation, but forgot to inform the cosmonauts during the preparations to return to Earth. Number four, there were gaps in the organization of the inspection of the spacecraft systems before undocking from the Salyut. This was mainly left to the crew who were exhausted after the longest space mission in history. In addition, the coordination between the flight control and the spacecraft was aggravated by the briefness of the periods of radio communication. And number five, when a problem developed with the hatch during preparations to undock from the Salyut, flight control failed to halt the proceedings. Instead of pausing to investigate the problem, the controllers improvised to circumvent the issue with a strip of insulating tape. The problem with the hatch was the warning that no one noticed. The flight director should have intervened 
to review with his controllers the status of the life support system and had the crew repeat the setup of the vital life support elements of the descent module, the ventilation valves as well as the hatch. Next, cosmonaut training. Number one, Dubrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev were members of the third Salyut crew until the launch of Soyuz 10 in late April 1971. As such, they were not trained as intensively as the first two crews since no one expected them to fly to Salyut 1. They were scheduled for Salyut 2. In addition, after the failure of the Soyuz 10 to dock, the crew, which expected to fly Soyuz 11, Leonov, Kubasov, and Kaladin, lost about one month of their training time when the launch was advanced from the middle of July to early June. They had only one month to train with the revised docking procedure, and the training staff concentrated on this activity. Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev, who became backups after the failure of Soyuz 10, trained in the shadow of the Prime crew. But a few days prior to launch, they found themselves assigned to the flight. Number two, there was no basic cosmonaut decompression training in the Soviet program. And number three, the Prime and backup crews for the Soyuz 11 mission trained using different re-entry procedures. Contrary to training regulations, Leonov trained with the manually operated shutters of both ventilation valves closed during the descent. Dabrowski trained, according to the rules, with one manually operated shutter open and the other closed. And lastly, the cosmonauts. Number one. Owing to the error in the onboard documentation and the fact that the flight controllers neglected to warn them otherwise, the crew of Soyuz 11 undocked from the Salyut, believing that the manual shutters of the ventilation valves were set in the opposite sense to that which was the case. And when they realized that the valve was leaking, they directed their attention to the wrong valve. Number two. Volkov, being the flight engineer, was responsible for the onboard systems. During his inspection, he could have discovered that the ventilation valves were set differently to the specifications in the onboard documentation, but he did not. If he had reset the state of the manually operated shutters to the onboard documentation with number one manual valve closed and number two manual valve open, then, when the automatic shutter on number one became unseated, there would not have been a decompression. Number three, could the Soyuz 11 crew have done more to save their lives? Might Dabrowski and Patsayev been able to stem the air leak by placing a finger over the valve inlet where the aperture was no larger than a coin? Although Kamanin and the medics said no to this. Mission persistently claimed that this could have been done. Could a cosmonaut survive with part of his skin in direct contact with space? NASA had an experience of a suit puncher. During a spacewalk on shuttle mission STS-37, the palm restraint in an astronaut's glove came loose and migrated until it punched a one-eighth inch hole in the pressure bladder 
between his thumb and forefinger. The astronaut did not realize that his suit had developed a puncture until he came back inside the spacecraft and discovered a painful red mark on his hand. In this case, there was no decompression because when the metal bar punctured the glove, his hand spanned the opening. He bled into space and the coagulating blood sealed the opening and served to glue the bar in the hole, sealing it again. Therefore, it is possible, but somewhat unreasonable, to expect the cosmonauts to have sealed the leak with a finger. And number four, the fatigue and disorientation of the Soyuz 11 crew after 24 days in space together with the inadequate organization of the flight, the tensions with the flight control, the anxiety of the fire, and the difficulty closing the hatch, all probably served to slow the reaction time of the cosmonauts during the rapid decompression. Taken together, all these factors led directly or indirectly to the deaths of the Soyuz 11 cosmonauts. In July of 1971, while the tests were still underway, the State Commission released a 200-word statement to the public. After pointing out that the flight of the Soyuz 11 was normal until the onset of re-entry, it went on to say, quote, On the ship's descent trajectory, 30 minutes prior to landing, a rapid drop of pressure occurred in the descent module leading to the sudden deaths of the cosmonauts. This is verified by the medical and pathological anatomical examinations. The drop in the pressure was the result of a loss of the ship's hermetic seal. An inspection of the descent module showed there to be no failures in its structure. A technical analysis has determined several possible causes for the loss of the seal. The study of these continues, end quote. Incredibly, This is the only report ever to have been officially released describing the deaths of the Soyuz 11 crew. And interestingly, three of the most important documents about the Soyuz 11 tragedy were never made public. These were, one, the final report of the State Commission, including the individual reports of its subcommissions, two, the data recorded by the black box in the descent module prior to, during, and after the separation of the modules, and three, the full reports of the autopsies of the crew. Additionally, the Kremlin hid the truth about the Soyuz 11 tragedy from the Soviet people. The fact that Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev died as a result of a valve inadvertently opening due to the shock after firing of explosive bolts was revealed publicly by the Washington Post on October 29, 1973, more than two years after the accident. Meanwhile, back at OKB-1, designers and engineers began work on developing modifications to the Soyuz to eliminate the weaknesses revealed by the investigation. Of course, it was duly decided that henceforth, cosmonauts would wear pressure suits for launch and the return to Earth. Gay Severin quickly adapted the so-called stratospheric pressure suit, designating the cosmonaut version 
the SoCall K. Additionally, a system was installed to automatically pump air into the descent module in the event of decompression. In fact, this oxygen supply system was designed in such a way that the crew would be able to survive decompression even if they were not protected by a pressure suit. Of course, this meant that the spacecraft could now only accommodate two cosmonauts. The problematic ventilation valves were also modified in such a manner that a premature opening would cause it to reclose automatically. However, with all the changes, it was discovered that the Soyuz would be overweight for its launch vehicle. It was now 100 kilograms more than its predecessor. Something had to go. Since the spacecraft was only to be used to ferry crews to and from the space stations, and hence would require an endurance in independent night of only two or three days, it was decided to discard the heavy solar panels in favor of chemical storage batteries. The revisions to the new Soyuz 7KT were completed within a year. Of course, the Soviet's chief competition, NASA, was highly interested in what went wrong with Soyuz 11 and, as a result, would make some changes to the Apollo program. But the problem was, with all the Soviet secrecy, NASA wasn't exactly sure what went wrong with Soyuz 11. However, based on the information they had at the time, NASA did make a change to the flight plan for Apollo missions 15 through 17. It was decided that after the lunar landing, when the crew was jettisoning the lunar module ascent stage from the command and service module, all three astronauts would wear pressure suits. The reason for this was the last separation of the lunar module from the command module was not done by the docking latches. Instead, it was done using explosive bolts. In fact, the entire docking mechanism was separated from the command and service module through pyros and was carried off with the lunar module ascent stage. Since it was an explosive event, and in light of what information NASA had understood about the Soyuz 11 accident, the change was made for the first time on Apollo 15 and continued through Apollo 17. To illustrate this, I have a little excerpt from the Apollo 15 flight journal. This is Jim McDivitt discussing the pressure suit change made for Apollo 15. He says, quote, After the Soyuz accident occurred, we went back and reviewed all the procedures and equipment that we had in the spacecraft and other associated equipment that might in any way be affected by this same type of thing, without really knowing what that thing was. It was obviously a loss of pressure somehow, and evaluating each one of these events, from liftoff to insertion, insertion to the orbital thing, translunar injection of the lunar trip, operations around the moon and back towards the earth, and then re-entry, we found 
one case where we felt that we could improve the safety of the crew, and this was at the time when we jettisoned the lunar module. At that time, we sort of blow a ring off the end of the command module, and we felt that by leaving the pressure suits on at that period of time, blowing the lunar module and its associated ring on the command module off, that we could improve the crew's safety. So, we changed the crew procedures for that particular period of time. End quote. However, it is interesting to note that NASA's practice of re-entry into Earth's atmosphere with the crew wearing only their Teflon fabric in-flight coveralls without a pressure suit was still not changed on any of the remaining Apollo missions. You may recall that that decision was made after Wally Sherall's rebellion on Apollo 7. Therefore, just like the Soviets on Apollos 8 through 17, the crews re-entered the atmosphere without pressure suits. And finally, the Soyuz 11 tragedy had an effect on Salyut 1. On July 9, 1971, while the investigation of the accident was still underway, the State Commission decided to halt preparations for the next flight to Salyut 1. This was despite Alexei Leonov's assurance that his crew was ready for a one-month mission. But after such a terrible tragedy, no one in charge wanted to take the risk. Salyut 1 was in very good condition, continuing to orbit in its automatic regiment, and the controllers in Yevpatoria continued to monitor its systems. However, when it became clear that there was no prospect of revisiting the station, it was destroyed on October 11, 1971, by lowering its orbit so that it would enter the atmosphere over the South Pacific, where it burned up. The world's first space station had been in orbit for 175 days. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 335 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Impacts of Soyuz 11 on Future Soyuz, Salyut 1, and Apollo. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on April 9th. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 164 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. 
I had a lot of assistance with the Apollo portion of this episode from my friend, Mr. Lewis, at NASA Johnson Space Center. He is the system manager for the Orion Environmental Control and Life Support. So he deals with a lot of this pressure suit and life support stuff on a daily basis. And I am lucky to have him as a listener to this podcast. In an email, he informed me of some little-known details about the Apollo program that I was not aware of. You remember back on Apollo 7 when Wally Sherrall's crew had colds and Wally didn't want to wear his fishbowl pressurized helmet during re-entry, which was contrary to what had been done on Mercury and Gemini. Mission Control advised him to wear the helmet. But he didn't do it anyway. (laughs) Well, I thought that was the end of it there. That the crew was always to wear pressure suits during re-entry. But it turns out I was wrong. Starting with Apollo 8, the crews were returning to Earth in their coveralls. Knowing that I might question this, Mr. Lewis provided supporting documentation as to its validity. This is an excerpt from the Apollo 8 press kit. It says, quote, After taking off the spacesuits, the crew will wear Teflon fabric in-flight coveralls. The two-piece coveralls provide warmth in addition to pockets for personal items. The crew will wear the in-flight coveralls during re-entry, end quote. Now that was from the Apollo 8 press kit. Mr. Lewis also sent me a document called the Suit Wearing Schedule. Now this document was in a table format, and it covered who wore what and when they wore it. Now, the who refers to the commander, lunar module pilot, and the command module pilot. And the what is the hard pressure suit, soft suit, partial suit, and the coveralls. Now, this document clearly indicated that everyone wore the coveralls during re-entry. So, my assumption was wrong about the astronauts always wearing pressure suits upon re-entry. And I want to apologize if I misled anyone on this. So, on Apollo missions 8 through 17, the crews re-entered in coveralls, not pressure suits. Now, with all that said, unlike the old descent module on the Soyuz, which didn't even have an air tank, the Apollo cabin was much more forgiving in the event of a pressure leak. Additionally, suits were provided for the crew to don if this occurred. Here's an excerpt from Mr. Lewis's email. If there was a hole in the cabin up to half an inch in diameter, the emergency cabin pressure regulator would kick in and hold the cabin above 4.2 PSI to allow the suits to be donned. 
I have seen that they could hold this for up to 15 minutes, which would have been sporty to get their suits on. But they were limited by the generation rate of O2 coming off the cryo tanks after the O2 surge tanks were depleted in the cabin. End excerpt. Okay, but still, why take the risk? Why didn't NASA insist the Apollo crews re-enter in pressure suits? Mr. Lewis had a thought on this as well. He believed there were two factors, ear clearing and heat stress. Mr. Lewis wrote, Coming down in altitude is the hardest because that is where you get your ears stuck. And when they get stuck, it really hurts. Being that you cannot stop the descent and the repressurization, you have to keep ahead of equalizing your ears or you will be hating life. Mr. Lewis had buddies ride out the vacuum chamber in gurneys because they hyperventilated trying to keep up. Different than the Mercury Navy Mark IV or the Gemini GCs, the Apollo A7L and A7LBs spacesuits had no visors. So there was no opening your visor to pinch your nose to clear. There was a little Valsalva device to plug your nose with that was stuck to the inside of your helmet. But it can be tricky to get, the, get it to work right. When Apollo 7's crew had colds, that just made clearing your ears even worse. Mr. Lewis believes Wally Sherrall's rebellion on Apollo 7 had a lasting effect in the Apollo program. Okay, that covers the ear-clearing issue. Next is the heat problem. Mr. Lewis wrote, When you land with thermal soak back from re-entry, the cabin got pretty hot, but Jiminy was even worse. The suit in the command module had no liquid cooling garments, and airflow alone was not that beneficial for cooling. Also, the suits don't breathe very well, so you lose the benefit of sweat cooling. So, ear clearing and heat stress. Two reasons the astronauts did not want to wear suits on re-entry. I want to thank Mr. Lewis very much for weighing in on this subject. That is some really, really good information. Now, moving on, at the end of this episode, I mentioned that they uh, deorbited Salyut 1 because the second mission to Salyut 1 was canceled. They had to deorbit because they didn't have enough fuel to keep it up there long term. These early Salyut stations had a very finite lifespan. But how about that Alexei Leonov? He was ready to go anyway. He wasn't worried about the ventilation valves or the lack of pressure suits or air tanks in the descent module. He was confident that his crew would have just closed the shutters on those valves before jettisoning the orbital module and not had a problem. I don't think Alexei 
had any fear in him. I would have loved to have met him. And speaking of someone I would have loved to have met, how about Al Warden, the Apollo 15 Command Module pilot that performed the first deep space walk? Sadly, Al passed away this past week. Now, I was actually scheduled to meet with him in 2017 down at the Cape. He was doing one of those lunch with an astronaut deals, and during that, you get to talk to the astronaut and take a picture with him. So I was really looking forward to that, and Mrs. SRH and I were both signed up for it. But at the last minute, something happened, and he couldn't come. We were sorely disappointed. And I still am. You will be missed, Al Warden. But we will get to know him better very soon when the SRH podcast begins this coverage of Apollo 15. Now at this point I usually talk about supporting the podcast financially, but considering what we are going through, I don't even feel right asking that today. I know some of you are without work now or struggling financially, and I want to encourage you to hang in there. I do believe things will get better soon. Please consider supporting the podcast as a low priority. A low priority, okay? I don't want any money from someone who is struggling financially. And I do want to thank those of you who continue to support the work being done here. Thank you very, very much. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions, and I'd like to recognize Alan M. from Michigan, who donated at the Mercury level, Otar D. from Norway, who donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji, Peter Y., a Scotsman in Denmark, donated for School Times International, at the Mercury level, and earned a moon emoji. Andrej S. from the Czech Republic donated at the Vostok level. John O. from Portugal donated at the Vostok level. Lee pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Bernard T. from Hong Kong, by way of Ireland, pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Thank you so much for your support. Our total Patreon donors have reached 249, and our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 308, with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. It's time to draw our winner for this episode. Now, remember, our winner will get a choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two of our new holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Phoebe Deadman. Phoebe Deadman, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 308 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. Dear friends, may you stay healthy 
and safe amid this COVID-19 crisis. My sources for this episode were Mr. Lewis at NASA, Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Salute the First Space Station by G. Ivanovich, Russia Space Web, NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Space Facts website, Two Sides of the Moon by Alexei Leonov, the Apollo 8 Press Kit, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for episode number 335. I'll try to have episode 336 posted by Thursday, April 9th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.